0: Let me start by saying that I definitely see why so many people find this to be an enjoyable game. I actually enjoyed going through this myself, even though I was blitzing uh, a little bit. Lord knows, I basically leveled three characters in the first half. Sigurd, Do, and Aira. Aira? I don't know how to pronounce her name. But that was it. Those were the only three characters I touched. Otherwise it would just... Um, And Lord knows that this game... It's hard to talk about games like this. Usually games like this don't even come up for me. Because this was a game that... wasn't. It's not that it has aged badly. Because I've played many games that have aged badly. But it also hasn't aged well, if you follow me. It feels halfway irritating and halfway clunky, but not all the way. I could still play through it. It wasn't actively, you know, in in the middle of my gut every time I tried to do anything. But I still found myself going, "Ah," I'm just being frustrated at a lot of aspects of it. Um, I like some of the concepts here. We see what is basically the very beginnings of the weapon triangle here. Uh, Weird implementation, though, since it felt more like a weapon like, line than it did at the triangle in actual uh, function. Of course, affection values and jealousy mechanics um, brought their way into effect. And, of course, that's necessary since this is a genealogy. It's a two-generation war. We're going through here as the second holy war of Loctur. I don't actually remember if this is the second one or third or whatever. Because they talk about the previous one, which was. 90 to 100 years before now and i don't feel like they talked about another one in between i could be wrong i know this is not exactly the you know the next generation of the uh, uh cultist group so you know we've got that going on uh, by the way quick clarification uh, i know in the game it says lopduus or loptaus or i actually have no idea how to pronounce that but since Lopter is actually in English translated games, Awakening comes to mind immediately. Uh, I'm going to go with Lopter. Lopter? Lopter? I may vary on that pronunciation, but that's how I'm going to call him, okay? Just, just to be clear who I'm referring to. Big, evil, black dragon. Probably Earth dragon related to Grima, you know. I liked the idea of the Holy Blood. The concept that, you know, certain people are literally possessed of draconic blood and, and blood, and have the super blood as a result of that, and that allows them to be uh, better versed in whatever weapon that particular crusader passed on down. You know, it's a neat concept. Um, in practice, it did mean I was a little more pigeonholed, but I don't mind because it kind of forced me to vary up my units. And one of the things I did like about this game is I could field so many units at once that I never really felt like, oh, well, I have to have my main team. I still did have my main team, but I didn't have to. The game was not forcing it upon me, and I do enjoy that. Um, trading weapons sucked. (laughs) I mean, I get it, I get it. It, it, I've actually heard arguments, in fact, after I beat the game, I was talking to it with a, a gentleman who probably knows who that is. You know who you are, you're probably watching this video, and, um... I was, him in addition to other people have also argued that the trade bartering to the pawn shop and then buying back for ludicrous sums is a deliberate game mechanic rather than just an oversight of older design. I don't buy that personally. To me, that really, really feels like older game design. It feels like the kind of thing you'd see in an older RPG, which hadn't really thought of things like convenience mechanics or quality of life changes or anything like that yet, you know, hadn't even occurred to them yet. But who knows? Maybe it was deliberate, because it could serve as a gateway to not trade items, but that itself can be irritating. I don't know. What I did like is the uh, the villages. I know that sounds like a weird thing to comment on. So the huge maps could get kind of irritating, um, dependent on the map, really. Like, the size isn't really the relevant point. It is <laughs> how you use it. It is exactly... Uh, as with all aspects of game design and mechanics, what matters is what you do with the mechanic, not whether or not you have the mechanic at all. In some cases, I felt like the large maps were very well crafted so that it felt like this long engagement going throughout this, uh, basically what is effectively an entire country, whereas in some cases it felt like, all right, we're done with this skirmish. Our next place is way over there. You know? So it depend- it varied from level to level for me. Um, I am told, although I cannot verify with 100% certainty, that this is when Myrmidons started becoming a thing. I believe it, because Myrmidons have always been one of the units I like to use uh, extensively in Fire Emblem games, and I leaned heavily on, in, in Generation 2, and I wrote their names down, because, hell with this, uh, Larce, Larce, and Ulster, Aera's children, in other words, um. Also, the silver sword upgrade. That's a neat mechanic. I wish... I, I didn't. I only had it happen with the silver sword, so I'm not sure if that happens really well. But anyways, I like the idea of how they approach generational mechanics. I feel like it's an idea that could be more polished, but I do still like this. And, of course, I like the idea of a generational RPG. It's actually one of the things that I liked about Romancing the Saga 2, even though there are several many other aspects of that game that I did not like. Uh, that was something that I was all in favor of. Um, I I mentioned, you know, uh, that I was leaning very heavily on Sigurd, Due, and Aira in Generation 1. I pretty much le- le- leaned on her children, Ulster, whatever her name is, I, I scribbled it down so hastily I can't even remember, and Julia. I just completely leaned on them and had my core group, and it was just... <laughs> I did have trouble a few times, I'm not going to lie to you. Um, oh, the villages, I didn't finish talking about the villages, so large maps, right? I liked being motivated. So one of the things I found very strongly in this game was that money was king. Um, What I mean by that is of the various resources that exist, the equipment, the people, the experience, and the money, money felt like the top notch there. And there were several reasons why. First of all, obviously, the pawn shop trading thing, like I mentioned earlier. You want to get one of those rings to someone else? You gotta go to the pawn shop. But the second and most important reason is the repair mechanic. So many of the really good weapons, which have like five shots or whatever, uh, can be repaired, and it's really expensive to do so. So I personally felt very motivated to try and get that initial 5,000 uh, money, I forget the currency, gold, uh, 5,000 currency bonus for racing to a village and making sure it doesn't get pillaged at all. But I also very much like the fact that you are not penalized uh, by, in a binary fashion. If you get there too late, you might save it from being partially pillaged or even heavily pillaged. It takes a while for a village to actually be wiped out completely, and I really liked that mechanic. Um, I tend to like granular, dif- uh, dif- uh, not difficulty, uh, granular penalties for failure rather than binary penalties for failure. It's something I tend to enjoy in game design in general. Um, what else here? Do I have any other notes about gameplay? I did enjoy this. As of right now, I've only played, for reference, I've only played three Fire Emblem games as of this moment. This would be the third. And this one is probably my second favorite. I know that's not saying much, but I really did like 7 quite a lot. A lot of 7's gameplay just really shined for me and just fit perfectly in my head and had the perfect... Op- you know, terrain really mattered. Stuff you could... You, you had alternate objectives, which allowed you to have multiple strategies other than just swarm the enemy or A move um i liked the variety of units and the variety of makeups you could use with your own army i liked the variety of equipment you know there there, was just a whole lot of really good stuff that i really enjoyed um there was one particular map on this game though that i really really liked and i bet most of you know what it is before i say it it is belhala it was a really really fun although that raptor fight oh my god so unfortunately i don't actually have that much else to talk about gameplay wise if i was actually doing a stream of this I'd go ahead and discuss more how it feels in that side, but this is a rumination. So let's discuss uh, or actually, I guess this is an analyze, isn't it? This is the analyze side of the show anal- analysis and discussion. So let's analyze. <laughs> <sighs> I'm not sure where I want to begin. I've, I, I only have a few thoughts, really, on this game. The first thing I want to talk about is how this region is screwed. This place is just a nightmare of political intrigue and backstabbing and people who... I, I got the extremely strong impression that these people should be a couple centuries ahead of where they are politically, economically, uh, fine, uh, uh technologically, magically, than where they are, except they are so constantly crawling over each other to stab each other in the back nonstop. And then you add the addition of things like the Lopter cult that it's just ugh, the whole time, right? It, it was actually kind of uh, aggravating, as weird as that may sound. I, I just want to shake these people like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You could be better. Um, <laughs> but I do see, I also have to admit really quick here, right at the beginning, that I personally enjoyed uh, the first half more than the second half. And I want to talk, that, let's start talking about that. One of the things I feel like I've brought up a lot when it comes to these type of games is the marriage between a political story and a fantasy story. I've talked about this so many times in my show. I talked about it the last time we discussed Fire Emblem. I talked about it in Final Fantasy Tactics. You know, I talked about it in Tactics Ogre. It just keeps coming up. And I felt that very few games have perfectly merged the fantasy element and the political element. Tactics came closest, although... I have to admit, my opinion of that has actually gone down a little bit since I replayed it for the proper remake lore run last year. Because, honestly, Tactics did do a good job of weaving the fantastical into the, into the political. Until, like, the last few chapters where it's just kind of, eh, okay, we need to finish the story, just sort of happened, right? I still think it's one of the better examples. I just can't no longer call it, like, the perfect merger like I used to because apparently I'm an idiot. This game feels the same, except far more dichotomized. The first half is way more about the political side of things, with almost no fantastical elements built into it at all. And the second half feels like a straight-up classic JRPG. Um, we've ju- it's just, here's... You know, you're the good guys, they're the bad guys, they're evil cultists, they're trying to bring back some evil doom lord from the past, right? It's textbook, right? It's straight out of typical jrpg dumb. Now, that's not a complaint, by the way, because they do some good stuff in the second half. But my point is, the plot of the first half, I can't summarize with a single sentence. Like, if I really tried, I probably could, you know. Uh, Decent guy tries to help someone, ends up getting embroiled in a local conflict that broils over into a kingdom-level conflict, and he's then requested help into another area, so that kind of branches over there, and meanwhile, the people back at home are scheming, and some are accusing him of being the one who kills Kurth, but he's not actually involved at all, and the people who actually are accusing him are the ones who did it, and, you know, it's political! It's everything I like about of a good political story, actually. And that's one of the reasons why I was like, ooh, this is good. Um... And I do, I've said this before, I do like the inclusion of the fantastical as long as it is properly woven into the political story. And in this case, I feel that they do a decent job of that. We find out that Manfroy is behind a decent amount of the things that are going on and has been pushing and scheming and doing all that fun stuff. And, of course, people like Reptor uh, and... Uh, i got to look up his name because I don't remember the other guy's name. What's the other guy's name? Where did I write his name down? I wrote his name down somewhere. <laughs> right didn't i hello maybe i didn't come on it's it's somewhere on here there should be a note god damn it about someone who is redundant as a character anyways my point i'm trying to reach is that uh some of the characters do they're not just politicians they also happen to have very powerful magic for example and that kind of helps to flesh them out a bit more maybe i'm a weirdo but to me, I find it a little bit easier to believe if someone is some horrible person who is a scheming manipulator who's in charge if that person also happens to have the ability to cast Mjolnir, for example, right? Uh, Lombard, by the way, was the other guy I was trying to think of. Um, let's talk about the first chapter a little bit. Let's talk about Grand Grandvale, excuse me. God, it's. I'm gonna screw up names. I'm just gonna let you know because one of the things I always do for ruminations, is I you know, I play through the game and I look up stuff too. You know, I don't just play a game. I try to do some research and and behind the scenes looking into. And I and this is a game that has never been officially translated into English. Um, so in some cases, I have an English name that I can use, like. Uh, Seliph is a, is a name that he's referred to in modern English iterations, even though there's like three other translations of that name. Uh, Lupter, as I mentioned earlier. But then in some cases, it's just like, eh, Like, have they ever said Granvale since then? I'm not actually sure. Maybe it's mentioned in Fire Emblem Heroes. I don't know. Anyways. <clears throat> so, Granvale has its war against Isaac. Now... That was kind of just another little power play of the region. But what I love about it is that Lombard and Reptor both decided to go and have Kurth killed, because Kurth was the person who was effectively in charge, even though the king, whose name I can't remember, it was like Arzor or something like that, is still actually in command. So... The prince is the one who's effectively giving the orders, but the king loses all will to, to function, and the next in line would actually probably be uh, Sigurd because of his merits to Deidre. Therefore, Sigurd has to be removed from power. So they blame him for the assassination, which means what we've got here is the perceived thing, which is king, prince, and then uh, basically prince-in-law, which is what Sigurd functionally was, Prince in law removes prince, becoming the next in line to the throne. Very simple. Obviously, that's not what happened at all. Sigurd had nothing to do with Kurth's death, and this is the two ministers trying to push this on him, along with some other people. He was not the only one involved in that. And so they're like, Moh-ha-ha! But of course, the real thing is that this is all being pushed by Manfroy, and someone else, uh, we'll talk about him last. I want to build up to that point. But I mention this whole thing because this is a wonderful little political drama that helps to emphasize why this kingdom is screwed. Here's the really interesting thing about this. And I want to start with this, even though I know this is a weird place to start. I usually do themes last, but I'm going to do characters last. I hope that'll make sense when we get there. and It'll still be an enjoyable video. I find that the theme of this is all about the consequence of action. I'm saying that wrong the, let's call it the scars of action, and the problems with unrestrained greed. Now, I know that sounds really obvious, but I'm kind of worming my way around here because this is a hard thing to talk about. It makes perfect sense in my head, I swear. The idea is the game tends to espouse the idea that if you had a strong, solid, unified force, which was led by competent people who actually give a crap, then it's good. If you have a strong, unified, powerful force which is everyone's on the same board and you have an incompetent or an evil person in charge, it is horrifically bad. Now this makes sense. Uh, This is the problem of absolute monarchy in a nutshell. I know this is gonna sound like a really strange thing to say, but i say this with total certainty an absolute monarchy in in of itself is not a bad form of government what is bad about it is that functionally has only one real point of failure the monarch if whoever the dictator is the emperor whatever who wields absolute totalitarian control as a dictator is evil incompetent or sidelined you have a problem if they are competent capable good want to actually do better by their kingdom, or empire, or whatever, then you have a good situation. Of course, the problem here, and this is where I feel it gets into the themes, because everything I've just described is just kind of a duh, right? Anybody who's studied government will know what I'm talking about. Um, But the real theme here isn't about that aspect so much as that it's about what it takes to get there. Because one of the things I noticed is that a lot of the nobles were all just doing their usual scheming. Uh, Reptor flat out says, you know, you you always want more power. Your dad died because he didn't have power, right? Reptor and uh, Lombard are just scheming for power. They're just doing the same old Game of Thrones they've always done, right? Hang on, musical chairs, musical chairs, up, that's it. That's all they've been doing, and none of that was towards any effect, and Sigurd himself was a patsy. I'll talk about him more later, but he wasn't actually trying to build up the mighty Granville Empire or anything like that. He was just helping out a friend, and then helping out another friend, and then some person came out and was like, hey, I was like, yeah, okay, and the dominoes just kind of kept rolling in that direction. Some intended, some not. But the one person who was really making all that work was someone who was deliberately scheming and conniving to craft a new empire. My new empire. I have brought peace, security, yada, 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 yada. right? But the person who did that got very scarred in the process. They did horrible, evil things and were arguably a horrible, evil person. That's debatable, but nevertheless, those scars are hard to ignore, what does this have to do with the game? Well, what if you were just handed the reins of that empire? What if you already have all of the hard, dirty, filthy work that goes into all of the political machinations and death and war and conquest and all of the other steamy, scheming, backstabbing, slicing off bits of your soul bit by bit, right? Right? Taking your morality and just kind of shriveling it inch by inch. You know, all of that that is involved in crafting a political entity is gone. Instead, you were just handed it. Here it is. It's already constructed. Because that's Selif. Selif was just a good kid. I mean, yeah, he's got the whole, I have to live up to my, you know, name, but that's it, right? He's just a kid. Yeah, I got, I got this. All right. You're now king. Uh, okay. And he didn't have to do any of that. The game seems to postulate that this is an ideal circumstance, that someone should go through the dirty work of crafting a strong unified force and then hand off those reins to someone who didn't have to sully themselves to accomplish it. In fact, this merger between this person who is is basically the the pragmatist versus the idealist, let's just call it that, although I don't want to call it versus because it's more about the cooperation. The cooperation between the pragmatist versus the idealist is all over the place in this game. Um... I'm reminded of what *Nino Kuni 2 should have done with its premise, and didn't quite do with the idealistic little king whose name I can't remember—Edward, I don't know—and um, the, the the president of the United States of America, who was the pragmatist, who was the one who was already practiced in statescraft and already willing to do, you know, unpleasant things in order to accomplish their goals. That merger of the idealist and the pragmatist is an idea that's fascinating to me, and I feel like this game. Doesn't quite touch on that, but I do feel it's the strongest underlying current beneath all of the events that happen throughout it. Oh, and then there's Lopter. Um, (laughs) uh, I want to talk about a couple other things in brief, just little thoughts that occurred to me as I'm going through this. So the child hunt is awful. Um... I know that's kind of the point, but what I mean by that is there's the, there's two layers of awful to the child hunts, in my opinion. The first is the obvious one. Duh. But the second one is how awful it is because it's extremely efficient. You take children and you say, hey, kill each other. Whoever survives this will be ascended to nobility. You will have wealth and privilege, and a welcome position in the new governance of our order. That's messed up because it is so effective, especially given where they call the children from. The idea of being able to be on top is such an uh, appetizing idea that you can imagine why so many kids, and even the parents of some of those kids, were totally cool with this whole ordeal. They could become, they could have so much more. And the parents, at least hypothetically, I don't think the game ever covered this. If it did, I missed it. Uh, The parents would also have a child who is now wealthy and privileged and a member of the upper aristocracy, or at least the middle aristocracy. Yes, I can have this wealth and position and power. All I got to do is send my kid off to murder. And of course... The first layer of horribleness is this is when this actually really comes in, because the whole idea is that these are puppets. The whole point is to craft puppets in order to supplant the existing bureaucracy. Fill it with nothing but people who are supremely loyal to you, because you lifted them up from nothing, and after they feel they earned it, gave them everything. And that is messed up. Even before we add the whole death cult thing into it, right? Yikes! I, I just had to comment on that. I also find it very interesting that pretty much the only person, the only named person in the whole game who is notably and demonstrably in favor of the hunt is Hilda. Because Hilda is a very horrible person. In fact, she's so horrible, I wonder why she's even in this game. But I digress. I could argue that there's actually only really two disgustingly horrible people like truly awful complete monsters in this whole game and that would be uh lopter and hilda manfroy's different we'll get to him we'll get to him i want to talk about the dead lords this is not my first time encountering them or even my second but from what i understand and what i've looked into the dead lords don't actually show up all that often in fire emblem what the hell who are these guys i i find myself just staring at them like huh and i went looking into them and trying to figure out what the hell was going on with them and i found nothing I mean, I found a lot of speculation, but I didn't find any definitive answers. So I'm going to give you my speculation and then move on. I think Dead Lord is a title, not a specific individual. I don't think that they're bringing back the exact same Dead Lords each time, but that the Dead Lord name is basically their position. You know, Basically, imagine if their names, rather than... I wrote one of them down. uh Anguilla? Imagine if instead of Anguilla, her name was... General, right? That's kind of where I'm thinking of this. And each one is just someone new is supplanted in the spot. Now, whether it's the same spirit that's inhabiting the body, I don't know. Because I get a very, very strong necromantic vibe from this whole Dead Lords thing. And I don't mean just the obvious. I mean, it really feels like what these guys are is a very elite sect of basically Death Knights, to use the Warcraft equivalent. The idea of someone who died under horrible circumstances but was very powerful or skilled or both in terms of martial, magical, or internal ability. And thus they are someone who could be used, basically a perfectly positioned pawn, to be crafted into a queen, to stretch the metaphor. And thus the Dead Lords are these mega units that... um, can be summoned by anyone who has the particular region skill to do so. I also can't help but notice another point of similarity between Lopter and Grima as a consequence of the Dead Lord's presence in both of their games. I really wonder what's up with that. Someday I'd like to find out more details, because the the amount of similarities between Lopter and Grima are just weird. Like, maybe Grima was supposed to be called Lopter, except they actually referenced Lopter in Awakenings. So I don't even know what's going on with that. But anyways, whatever. And, of course, this game also has been very specific about dark magic being bad. This is not Star Wars in some interpretations, and this is definitely not Kingdom Hearts or Final Fantasy or whatever. This is Fire Emblem, where dark magic is bad. Um, And I I once again note the idea... In fact, there's an interesting point where if you go through some of the missions in in the final parts of the game in a certain manner, some people literally just woof, out of existence because the dark magic has left them, and it was all that was sustaining them. The idea that they... If, the way I think of it is that they effectively supplant some of their own existing life energy with a continuous flow-through of dark magic. So they have to keep it coming in from some source or another, and they have to keep using it. They fail to do this, they just burn out because there's nothing keeping them up anymore, if you follow me. And... Uh, this, I feel, is su- is also supported by what happened over in Fire Emblem 7. It seems to be kind of a recurring theme, but then again, I've only played three of the games. Don't worry, I'm playing two more after this. That'll be interesting. Seeing where I go on this particular thought on dark magic. I also want to talk about Thracia. I don't have much to say about Thracia, other than the fact that I find them utterly fascinating from a world-building perspective. Uh, the idea of a kingdom that's built in lands that are poor and yet have one resource that is very useful dragons and they tame those dragons i hate to reference warcraft again but the idea of, at least the idealized version of the Dragon Maw Clan is what I'm immediately brought to mind of. They don't have resources, they don't have super-skilled mages, they don't have tons and tons of trade position, they're not politically connected. No, they have dragons, and they have built an entire culture around teaming, working with, and using dragons. The Dragon Knights being literally legendary, and in fact being one of the predominant sources of income for the entire kingdom. Because the <laughs> the, the trade deficit deficit that thracia has got to get going or uh yeah i'm saying that right i think actually i think i'm th- saying that wrong but or, the, the amount of, of of imported goods that thracia is making happen on a constant basis has got to be enormous and it being funded on the backs of those dragon knights makes a degree of sense to me it's them utilizing what they had in order to function it also makes so much sense why they kept going after the district the uh, i can't remember what it was called the whatchafig fig district I actually wrote down dist- oh, the Mansur district, there, the Manser district, which has its own little kingdoms. Um, I also find it funny if you're paying attention, what happened is the kind of thing that I would normally think was planned if someone you know more politically pragmatic was behind it, because what happens is Thracia conquers you know the district during the course of the game. And then they kind of get stomped into the ground, and Travant, was that his name? I didn't write down his name, Trevant, or whatever his name is, is killed by uh, Seliph. And that, that kingdom basically gets formed into a new kingdom, the new kingdom of Thracia, which actually includes op- uh, portions of Manster so that they now have some actual resources, including food, in order to be able to function without having to lean so heavily on their dragon knights, improving the overall quality of life for the entire kingdom. An interesting maneuver... To my knowledge, no mention is made of the new kingdom of Thracia being a vassal state, or at the very least, a uh, you know, some kind of tributary to Granvale, but I wouldn't be surprised if that is what actually happened, given the circumstances. And again, that sounds really planned to me, but I couldn't find any evidence of doing it. Obviously, I didn't play the Thracia you know, midquill game, so, duh. Anyways, I also found Augustria fascinating. So Augustria, we've got Chagall, right? Which I'm trying really hard not to say Chogall, because I've already made too many Warcraft references today. Chogall's there, and he's he's like, okay, I'm an idiot, and I want to be in charge. And we do know that Manfrey was pushing him, um, but he's like, okay, I've got an idea. I'm gonna go ahead and imprison one of my best knights, who is my vassal. Because uh, Augustria is basically a, a collection of smaller kingdoms. So I'm going to take Eldigan, and I'm going to squeeze him in here. And that means Nordian is now relatively unprotected, because its biggest knight and its literal leader is imprisoned by the overall sovereign of the region. So the nearby guys, and God, did I write their names down? Because there were some insignificant guys early on in the game. I don't I don't think I wrote that down. Who was it? <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Uh, nope, I didn't write down their names. Whatever. The other guys, the the Dinky Kingdom, who I can't even remember their name of, is like, aha, this is a perfect time to go and take Nordeon for ourselves. Go, man! And then, you know, it's one of the first fights you... Earlier fights you fight in the game. I point this out because this illustrates several things to me. First of all, it illustrates... The point I already mentioned, that everyone is infighting to the point of ridiculousness. But the other point that I'm immediately reminded of is how little control the Augustrian Dominion has over its member states. If an overarching power can't or won't intervene when some of its lesser states literally go to war in a war of conquest against each other, then you got problems, son, (laughs) and or ma'am. As the case may be. I mean, holy crap. I just looked at that like, more than anything, that, re- that made me think that Chagall was just an amazingly pathetic leader. And it's even made more ap- apparent because I didn't kill him. I didn't kill Eldigan, of course. Why would I kill him? He's a cool guy. And I like his sister. So it's like, no, I will not. And then he goes home to convince Chagall for peace and is executed. And shortly thereafter, I kill him because he's a moron. So what I love most of all, though, is that it doesn't even go that way. We kind of accidentally bumble our way into conquering Augustria because... And this is the the brilliance of this whole story. Let me rewind a moment. One of the things that I both like and dislike, it depends on execution, is when there's a group or an individual who is responsible for crafting every little thing that's going on in a plot to make sure that everything works together perfectly. Um, And that can be done very well... And it cannot be done particularly well at all. I'm sure you guys can think of examples of both off the top of your heads. In this case, though, Manfroy was not really behind everything. Because a lot of what happened, happened basically by coincidence. This is the biggest example. Um, uh, what's her name? Uh, I didn't write down her name, did I? Eldigan's sister. I can't... I didn't write down her name. There's too many names to memorize in this game. Way too many, I'm sorry. But Eldigan's sister... Uh, so we just happened to be in it. Sigurd just happened to be in the area, basically, on an unrelated thing. And she's like, guys, help! Because they were being attacked by idiot number one, and idiot number two, Elliot, I want to say, um, because of the fact that Eldigan was imprisoned. So she notices that Sigurd is nearby, and as a representative of Granville, she's like, help! help us deal with this. He's like, okay. So he goes and pushes them out of Nordion and basically takes a degree of sovereignty over Nordion as a result of his actions. Then he has to go up against Eldegan and and basically he just kind of works his way to the point where he's got a, a effective control over a weirdly large amount of the country and then uh, and then Chagall's like, okay, hang on, hang on, hang on. Peace? Please? Okay, we've got peace. And then rather than adhere to that piece, he, because he's an idiot, decides to go ahead and push back and be like, you know, nah, hang on, hang on, i got a better idea. Why don't you get the hell out of my kingdom? And so, as the only response that is functionally available to Sigurd, he goes ahead and just goes to war with Ch- Chagall, crushes him, and there goes Augustria. It's now part of the Granville Empire. Congrats! Like, it really is funny how this construction of events, some manipulate its most not, well, I, I, I suppose which percentage which is up to you, but some manipulated and some not. It, through these circumstances, Sigurd just crafts this new Granvalian Empire out of the entire region, out of the uh, Jugral? Jugdral? I'm not sure how to say that. Region. It was really funny to me. Um, uh, I also wanted to talk briefly about Miletos. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that one right right at all. My Letos was an interesting circumstance for me because it's like, oh, we're finally going into this region. I'm not sure why it's in the game. Now, I know from some of my research that uh, there's a bunch of cut content, uh, and a lot of it was supposed to be expanded upon. I also know that the manga exists... No, I didn't write it. Let me just start with that. The manga was so... Uh, I was informed that the manga was so different in several significant story points that, and my request to was to ruminate on the game, not the manga. So since there are two diverging stories and two diverging storylines, I'm focusing on the game. But anyways, I get the feeling that my letters just kind of was either there because it was what was left of other existing content or it was filler because I didn't really see a lot of purpose in it existing. Um... We have Hilda, right? Um, Danan, that was his name. Um, <laughs> it's right here. We have Hilda. She's put in charge of Miletus. Why? She's not even a particularly in- significant person. She's one of the last bosses of the game, and it's just Hilda. You know who Hilda is? An idiot. I mean, yeah, she's co- directly connected and related to several major characters, but she's just a <laughs> evil. You know, she's what I call stupid evil or stupid Sith, because it's the same thing. The idea of someone who will do things because they are stupid and evil. And that's their motivation. And she was the one who was like, yes, child hunts are awesome! And you know, we go down there to Miletus, and it's like, ah, oh, we will free this land from her. And then we do, and then we leave, and we learn nothing about the area. But I really feel like her presence in the story was redundant because of Denon back in Isaac. See, let me rewind a moment. Uh, earlier, we go back to hit Isaac. This is in the second part of the game now. And Danan, who is the son of Lombard, has been put in charge of Isaac. Now, Lombard was just eh, whatever, but Danan, he's a harkenin. You know what I mean? In all of the bad, insulty ways I could possibly mean that. He is pathetic, stupid, incompetent. He is, Everything emphasizes how much he is running Isaac into the ground. And this is a story point, because this showcases how much the Empire under Lopter, we'll talk about that in a minute, is destructing, self-destructing, how the singular absolute monarchy is absolutely terrible for everyone in it, and this is a personal showing of that, because of the nature of how much it's being deliberately mismanaged. But then we see Hilda and Miletos, who is the exact same story point. I, I, I honestly got the very strong impression that the only reason she was there at all was because she was actually in active support of the cultists. And I do not even see any direct evidence of that, so I, whatever. Um, let's talk about Lopter really quick. I got the very strong impression that Lopter is kind of unique when it comes to the Earth Dragons. Uh you know, obviously we've got the ones who refused to become monokites. We know about that. And then there's the ones who became monokites. But for Lopter, I felt like he felt both options were unacceptable. This is just pure speculation, by the way. I felt that he felt both options were completely unacceptable and basically stumbled upon a third option. Someone who was willing to basically bind themselves to him and accept the blood of Lopter into them in order to allow Lopter to continue on, not as a dragon, but not as a monarchy, someone who could possess someone through the tome, through the tome of Lopter. That makes sense. I'm with that. I'm cool. Um, And I got the very strong impression because that makes so much sense from Lopter's perspective, right? The idea that, okay... I'm not going to have all my power, and I'm only going to have a little influence over this guy. But that's okay, because what I'm offering him is the real deal. I am offering him power, real power, not political power. I am offering him the ability to cast dark magic in a large way, and that's going to help change and shape the world. I'll talk about that idea a little bit later, too. And I'm going to do this, and he's going to love it, and he's going to be more positively inclined towards me. And whether he or his son or his son's son or whatever, and however many children down we got to go, male or female, it doesn't matter, How far we have to go down until I will eventually have wormed my way into their good graces to the point where I could start directly possessing them. And once I do that, once I have more direct control over whoever happens to be wielding my tome, I can start using their political influence to mold and brainwash children so that they from birth are perfectly accepting of me being, you know, them being my host body i bring this up because the first character i really want to talk about is actually julius because julius is not a character in this game now i know there were other things that were supposed to happen about that but by all accounts we never really see julius in this entire game we see lopter he is fully in control of and possessing the host as as the host um or as as the thing that is possessing his host body which is julius and i feel like that's strangely logical and horrifically insidious, just like the child hunt thing. Because the whole point is that you have, you have groomed this person from birth to be this exact, s- specific requirement, so that Lopter can be like, ah, fresh body. And Julius ceases to be. Now, I know that based on the way the games work and the setting works, Julius probably was inside there somewhere. But I personally prefer to think that he wasn't. That he was literally obliterated. That if you somehow excised Lopter from Julius, all that would be left is a corpse. Because there's nothing there. Julius was gone long ago. Now that's the way I think of that. I know, I know, that doesn't quite line up with things. But I do prefer that perspective because that's basically how it's presented. We are not fighting Julius. We are fighting Lopter. Now... Lopter is interesting in his own right because he is a stupid evil um, and he is the perfect antagonist for someone like Selif. Lopter is interested in a world in which he is in control and everyone else is rotten or broken underneath his feet. He is, he is stupid evil. He is not interested in a well-precise, well-run country with prosperity and wealth and power and privilege, which he happens to be in charge of. He wants everyone to suffer. Screw you! You know, evil dragon, blah, 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 right? And I found that to be a It's one of the reasons why I found the second half, while still enjoyable, to be a little bit less, because I found him to be a far less engaging character than certain other characters I could mention a bit here. I want to talk a little bit about Seleth, because uh, I don't really have much to say about Seleth or Julia. I leaned on Julia a lot. Like I said, Julia... say God, I don't remember her friggin' name. I should just look it up. Hang on a second. Hang on. Uh, and um, so Julia Lissay and Ulster were pretty much my team uh, going through that. Hang on. Here we go. Uh, give me a second to find this. Uh, I'm just, I'm just going to have to look up Aria. Aria? God, I have no idea how to pronounce her name. I have a problem with Ayla, too. Over in Chrono Trigger. Ayla, Ayla, Moo. I, I can't pronounce normal names. What do you want from me? Fictional names. Oh God. <laughs> okay, children. Um, Larcy, Larsay, Larcy, and uh, Ulster. <laughs> there, there's an R there. I thought there was an R there. That's why I kept hesitating because I thought there was an R and I didn't write down an R. I wrote Lasse anyways. I just leaned on them heavily. But what can I tell you about Julia? Julia is pretty much your straight up female mage supporting character. She's a little bit hesitant. She's got a dark past. She's got amnesia. <laughs> And then, oh gosh, I'm actually incredibly powerful. Because, you know, holy blood, etc. Then there's Selef, who is, I'm here to do the right thing, and I will do what is right because it is what's right. Now, I'm not making fun per se, but my point is, in my opinion, both Celeph and Julia were textbook 101 JRPG protagonists. Like, how many other games can we point to where there's the, the plucky kid who's a good guy, and that's his character trait, you know, I, I will do good because no matter what, I refuse to listen to thought or reason. No matter what, right? How many other games can we list that has that kind of protagonist and has the, the female support who's like, no, I'm, I totally care about you and that's my main character trait and blah, blah, blah. Oh, God, but I'm secretly super powerful, right? How many times have we seen this? So I don't have much to say about either of them. The most interesting thing I could say about Seliph is what I already said. But I do feel like that someone like him, the idealist, is necessary if the idea of the cooperative, cooperative empire is a real thing. The idea of the idealist cooperating with the pragmatist. Um, now, I want to contrast this first with Sigurd, who isn't the, prota- uh, uh, the pragmatist, but hear me out. I swear I'm going somewhere with all this. Because Sigurd is also the typical JRPG protagonist Except written very, very well. I liked Sigurd because he, well, he was a dis- he could do- he was a deconstruction, but he was a well-done deconstruction. He was a typical JRPG protagonist, and what happened as a consequence of him running around protagonizing is exactly logical. He basically unintentionally conquered the entire continent on accident because he was just trying to do the right thing and help people out. And that's it. And I like that. Everywhere he went, he was outmaneuvered and outplayed politically because he wasn't thinking politically. He wasn't worried about how his actions looked. He didn't, he wouldn't concern himself with what the people thought or what the, the politicians thought or the ministers thought or the kings thought. All he cared about was doing what he personally believed, based on his own moral compass, what was right. And I like the fact that as a result of all of this, and I can't believe, it, if, if you're still watching, this is the spoiler of the game. I actually, for the record, this was not spoiled for me. I didn't know this was coming. Um, the one bit of spoiler I had going in was someone told me match up Dew and Ira and level them both, and they and I was just like, okay. That was the only tip that was given to me before going into this game. Obviously, it has genealogy in the title, so I figured generations. But anyway, so yeah, Sigurd dies. He he dies horribly, and along with most of his army as a consequence of his actions. And that's very logical. It's even more logical because he did effectively pave the way for other people to take control. Like Manfroy. I love that. I love that idea. He's so easy to be... It it reminds me of Bob from Chrono Cross. I can't think of his name. Uh, Stir? No. Oh, God. I gotta look it up because then you will just tell me if I don't. Hang on, Chrono. I've got my notes on my keyboard here so I can't really... Uh, what's his name? His name is Bob. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Surge! Surge is his name. Please don't tell me in, in the comments. I looked it up, just so you wouldn't tell me. He reminds me of Surge. Someone who runs, this isn't really a spoiler, someone who runs around protagonizing, and a mess follows him because he's doing that. I like that. But I want to talk about Manfroy. Now, I found Manfroy to be a surprisingly engaging villain. You could tell that this is someone who is a broken person, but not in the sense that is usually portrayed in fiction. What we saw in Manfroy was someone who... I like to think of it as 2 plus 2 equals 5. I'm probably going to make a lorem about this sometime in the future, because it's been coming up more and more lately. Um, The idea is... It's not that he's evil in the strictest sense of the word. It's that his core concepts, the, the, the building blocks of how he perceives reality, are different in a violently un, you know, unpleasant way from other people's building blocks. Now, I don't mean like, you know, well, I believe this. No, I mean like even more core and central than that. I'm not talking about religious debate. I'm not talking about sexual preference. I'm talking about 2 plus 2 equals 5. And don't give me that stupid response about how 2 plus 2 can equal 5 for extremely high. No, 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 no. I mean if you take 2 as a whole number and 2 as another whole number and equal them together and your mind punches out 5. You have a mathematical problem with the way your brain works at its core, at its most central level. that's the impression I got from Manfroy, Someone who was raised from youth to be a part of a cult environment in a dark cult of evil horribleness. It's basically a death cult. You might as well just call them the Twilight's Hammer. It's my next Warcraft reference. It's the last one, I swear. I hope. And and just get it over with, right? And then the whole, God, all right, I'm free. Oh, everyone died. And he's horribly disfigured. And it's just, okay. So he literally, at his center, perceives things differently than everyone else and wants different things than other people do as a consequence of that, because what he perceives to be X is what everyone else perceives to be M. I also found him to be an interesting manipulator, the Manon situation, uh, Kurth, arguably, and of course, using Arvis, who I haven't even mentioned yet. Um, I also kind of like Manfroy's overall motives. Like I said, it, it feels like... So, okay, I want to debate this with you. Uh, but obviously you can only respond to me in comments. So please, feel free to respond in comments. Because I felt like it could be argued that Manfro was either wrong, as I just mentioned, or did not give a crap. And when I say that, some people I've noticed don't actually understand what the screw it mentality actually means. And they shouldn't, because to truly be at the point of not caring is actual insanity. It's the point which your mind is f- is functionally breaking down. When you do not care, when consequence has no impact on you, you can and will do really unpleasant things. This is a real-life thing as well as a fictional thing. Uh, arguably one of the biggest powers of the Joker in several of his presentations is that he just does not care. Yeah, I'll rip off my face. Sure, why not? Well, that's horrible. It'll be terribly painful. Yeah, okay. What? Why do I care about that, right? So, that's a real thing, by the way. You can look it up. Please don't look it up. It's really gross. But Manfroy, I felt, was interesting because he was very believable. He was far more interesting than Lopter. Lopter was just... (laughs) Stab! Manfroy felt like someone who had goals and arcs and motives and concepts and ideas and, and fleshed out. You know, the kind of person who was actually a person rather than just being horrifically, hideously evil. Right? I'm not even 100% sure how much I can call man for evil. I mean, obviously, he's a bad guy. He's a villain. But there's a difference between being villainous and being evil. In fact, uh, one of my more interesting kind of character types, which I see very, very rarely, is someone who is a villainous good guy. Uh, But I digress. No, not an anti-villain. Slightly different shading. But I've been dancing around it this whole time. Let's talk about Arvis, who is by far the most interesting character in this whole thing. Now, for me... I don't think I even need my notes at this point. Let me double check here. I talked about that. Talked about that. Talked about that. Arvis. Okay. Now I've 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 actually referenced Arvis many times already because Arvis is like I said in my opinion at the core of the central themes of the work. Arvis is the pragmatist to Cellef's idealist. Arvis is the one who said, "I am willing to do this horrible act. I do not want to." This is not a good thing to do, but I am willing to do this because I legitimately believe it will lead to a better future. Arvis is the one who saw all of these scheming, petty political motives of all of the different uh, ministers and kings and princes who are all just... I mean, remember, Arvis is not the one who killed Prince Kurth or arranged this entire set of dominoes to begin with. That was some petty, scheming nobles, but Arvis looked at it and said, okay, because Arvis managed to to manipulate himself into a position where he was going to be one of the stronger military powers in Granville, and then, by what amounts to total coincidence, ends up falling in love with Deidre. Now... That secures him a line on the throne. He gets a claim after that. But he needs to remove literally everyone above him in order to make that happen. King needs to die. Not a big problem. Prince needs to go away. Already dealt with. All of the ministers who are already better positioned, well, he can just help uh, Sigurd in order to deal with those. That just leaves Sigurd. Now, I mention this because this is something that I pondered for a while, and in fact, the gentleman who is watching this video can attest to this. I asked him, what was the point of betraying Sigurd? What, what was the significance of that in Arvis's plans? And when he gave me his response, it didn't answer my question. But I went back and reanalyzed the sequence of events leading up to the end of chapter, you know, you know the first, not chapter one, but you know, the, the first half of the game. And I realized that this was Arvis playing adaption chess. Again, He wasn't, this wasn't some big overall scheme that was planned ahead years in advance. My machinations have laid undetected for years. No, none of that. Instead, this was him looking at the situation saying, oh, I could use that. I could use that. And him conveniently positioning things just so, so that everyone that was ahead of him on the line of succession was removed and Arvis could ascend the throne of a newly expanded empire and really start locking down and unifying Granville into a nation. Now I know that sounds like a strange thing, but try to remember that in real life, nations are a fairly recent thing, an unusually recent thing. And this game, and this setting, this point in history—I don't remember the year. Forgive me, seven hundred something, I think. But anyways, uh, this point in game in this history of the of this world makes it very clear that this is Grandvale is like their first nation that everything else is kingdoms or fiefdoms or city states or whatever is smaller scale stuff right rome back when rome was just you know a few hundred acres or whatever around around a city right and this is arvis saying this mess is not good enough now i'm going to have to do some unpleasant things but i'm going to do them because this mess is unacceptable So he accepts the help of Manfroy, is pushed into this as well by Manfroy. He marries Deidre, finds out who she is. (laughs) There's been some disagreeing reasons as to why he brought Deidre in front of Sigurd. Um, My personal thought is twofold. First, he wanted to make sure that she was in fact Deidre. This would solidify his claim on the throne. The second was a little pettier, because remember, Arvis is not actually a good guy. I think Arvis wanted to prove to himself that Deidre was his, not Sigurd's. And so he brings out Deidre and's like, hey, this is my wife. You may or, you may, or may not have met her. And <laughs> I mention that because I get the really strong impression that Arvis, as partially consequenced of his blood, has been the kind of person who has been, let's say trying too hard for most of his life especially given the circumstances of his birth so with Arvis (laughs) who's Deidre's brother by the way um half brother I guess um Arvis is someone who he's, he's trying too hard he has a goal in mind that goal may or may not be noble which brings me actually I guess that brings me to my next point I don't want to paint Arvis as if he saw some great and glorious future. I want to paint Arvis as someone who said, this is unacceptable, so I'm going to try something else. He was, in a, in a very grand scale, rolling dice, in my opinion. Now, this is opinion. I'm not 100% sure about this. And as ever, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this matter as well. But I feel like Arvis's whole thing was, this is proven. you know, what we're doing right now is not working. It's just creating a massive mess for everyone. So I'm going to try something else. I'm going to try being a dictator. I'm going to try taking over everything and stomping down and establishing this rule of order. And by several accounts, it did work for a little while there. Right up until Lopter, in Julius's body, basically took over. And then it all went to hell very, very quickly. There's some bits of evidence that Arvis deliberately ensured that certain things would happen to ensure his and, uh, Lopter and Manfroy's defeat. And I personally believe that completely. I think that he was like, well, um, obviously this is not working and everything is just worse for everyone. But, but, I've got an idea. If I, if I put some stepping stones out there, We'll see if he can actually man up enough to take over this, because I also firmly believe that Arvis in no way thought that anyone else, especially not Seliph or Julia, could actually take the throne and hold it. Most pragmatists don't believe in idealism. I sometimes wonder what Arvis would think if he knew, like if he was able to watch what happened after Selef took the throne and was able to lead a new, uh, basically a new golden age by all accounts. My final complaint, though, about Arvis is that a lot of what I've just said is implication. Now, I don't mind implication in my stories. In fact, I love implication in my stories. But as I've always said, there needs to be a bit of moderation. You know, On this end, we have the story just flat out treating us like we're three-year-olds and telling us everything to our face. I don't like this. This is insulting. But then we have this side of things over here. And... I tend to dislike this side of things as well. When I have to go to the developer and say, could you explain what happened with this? When I have to pull a writer and say, hey, how did this work? And actually get answers from them, because those answers just aren't in the game. I don't mean they're vague. I mean they don't exist. I feel that's too much. And I feel that just a little bit too much of the characterization of several characters, notably Arvis, was a little bit too leaning on this side of the equation. And I, we had to fill in just a little bit too many of the gaps. I don't know how much of that was because of, because of content. I don't know how much about that is because of design. I really don't know. I did enjoy this game. Next, I'll be playing through another Fire Emblem, and then another one, and then I'll be going through a much shorter game, <laughs> thankfully. So, I hope you've enjoyed. I'll see you next time.